Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi there, and welcome to the Stock Club Podcast. I'm James, and with me this week is my Wall Street co-founder and chief investor, Emma Savage, and our head analyst, Rory Carrick. In this episode, we're talking about Spotify's big grab for Joe Rogan and the podcast industry, the possibility of Chinese companies being delisted from US indexes, and why April was one of the best months on record for the gaming industry. So guys, we're into week 11 of our working from home quarantine at the moment. How are you? How are you holding up? That long? It doesn't feel like... 11 like weeks. 11 weeks. Yeah. I'm... I'm strangely enjoying the work from home experience, to be honest. Really? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I'm, in a, <laughs> I'm probably in a better situation than an awful lot of people. I've got a back garden and an apartment to myself and no children, so it <laughs> suits, suits me pretty well. The, the weather in Dublin has been very nice recently as well, so sitting out in the back garden working is a lot better than looking out from your office desk, pining to be in the yeah. small amount of sun that Ireland gets uh, every year. Emmett, how are you finding it? Yeah, well, I, I don't know if it's um, causation and effect, uh, but I, I learned since we went to work from home that we're now the number one investing app in Bermuda. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not too sure if there's anything to do with, with that, but um, I'll take it, whatever. Absolutely. So let's move on to some of the recent news um, from the past two weeks. And I think the biggest headline for us here at my Wall Street anyway was the news that Spotify has shelled out a reported $100 million to grab exclusive rights to the Joe Rogan podcast. Um, this is arguably the biggest deal we've seen in the podcast industry to date, and it really sets down a firm marker for Spotify's intention in the podcasting space. Uh, start out, Rory, I'll come to you first. Do you listen to the Joe Rogan podcast? Uh, I've listened to about two of them. Uh, I've never. Yeah. They're very long, aren't they? They're something like three hours long. I listened to the one with... Um, Elon Musk, the infamous, the infamous uh, yeah. smoking the ganja <laughs> podcast. <laughs> kind of seems uh, tame now, considering what he's been up to recently. No. Uh, um, I listened to one with Anthony Bourdain, who I'm a huge fan of. Um, yeah. Or I bore a huge, or was a huge fan of. Um, but I, yeah, the three-hour podcast is a bit too much for, for me, to be honest. And yeah, he just wouldn't be really my style of, of person yeah. to listen to. Um, Emmett, are you a fan of Joe Rogan? No, uh, I've never listened to it. But, <laughs> but I did find the, the deal really interesting because back in early 2000s, there was an investing debate going on about two giant satellite radio stations, XM Satellite and Cirrus, um, which I'm sure listeners, I'm sure our listeners know went on to merge uh, in the summer of 2008. Well, well, back when they were separate entities, there wasn't a week that went by where there wasn't a debate about which of the two was a better investment. And yeah. uh, which was the Coke, which was the Pepsi, how would they make money? The business model seemed so unfeasible. And it was then in 2004 that it was announced that Howard Stern would leave uh, his longtime job at, I think it was Infinity Broadcasting, to join Cirrus. And at that time, the deal 
was worth $100 million a year for five years, uh, which really came back to me when I heard the deal size for Spotify. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, sorry, Rory. I mean, that's I, I, that's an interesting comparison as well, because back then what the satellite radio stations were asking users to do was to like invest in new hardware and to pay a subscription fee to to hear um their their content and it may, it's a testament to obviously how popular stern was that he became a huge boost for them and people actually did go out and make the investment so that they could hear howard stern the rogan ones like even more subtle because so many people already have Spotify on their phone and if they don't they can download it for free and the Rogan podcast is going directly to spot exclusively to Spotify uh, at the the start of next year but you even free users ad supported users will be able to listen to it it's not going behind any sort of paywall so yeah. what Spotify is asking users to do is very minimal which is just to listen on their platform um, and I think that's quite interesting because why would they shell out so much money for this for this thing that they're not getting? You know, they've no direct line of payment from essentially. And yeah. it's really about obviously changing behaviors. They want people to start using Spotify as their podcast platform, and this is something we've talked about plenty of times before. Spotify have realized that in terms of audio streaming, they're very limited because they have no control over the royalties that they have to pay out to artists. And that's, a, that's their biggest cost. Um, and that's never going to change. They can't even negotiate that. That's set by Congress in the United States. So they needed a new sort of revenue stream. And this is what they think is going to be their new thing. They, if they can own audio streaming in terms of music, they can own podcast streaming. Um, I don't know if anyone's ever used Spotify for, for podcasts, but it's, it's kind of a clunky system. Um, and it's not open source either. It's not like uh, most podcast players where you can ever, you just upload it to Podbean or one of those other things and it automatically becomes available. You actually have to pu publish it on Spotify yourself. So it's not the most ideal platform at the moment, but they're building towards that. And the thing yeah. with Rogan is he's the biggest podcaster in the world. I think he has something like 200 million podcasts every time you po post one, which is huge, far bigger than most other podcasts out there. So but they're, is he number they're... one in Bermuda? Is he number one in Bermuda? That's the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just... Get what, Spotify just... on the line. Yeah, exactly. How much will they pay us? <laughs> that was, the, that was the, my final question. <laughs> but Rory, but, just, uh... just to go on your point there, so like you've written quite a lot about Spotify and obviously Spotify were uh, a recent enough addition to the My Wall Street shortlist. And when you're talking about Spotify a lot, you, you talk about how they're trying to capture this podcast advertising space and is, is, you know, going for the, I suppose, the king of podcasting at the moment. Is that, their, is this their big land grab? Well, the thing about going for exclusive content deals is that you only need to get a couple to capture a much wider audience. You know, like yeah. if you, so if you're a podcast listener and you listen to maybe three or four different podcasts, Spotify doesn't need to get all four of them. They only need to get one. And it doesn't even have to be one that you listen to like, uh, religiously it could be one that you just listen to every now and again and so in that sense they just want to go for the biggest name because he's got the biggest reach um, and yeah they, I mean uh, the reason we kept Spotify out for so long was because of that royalties issue that we couldn't see where they were going to boost those gross margins then when we started seeing the move into podcasts a few years ago with the purchase of Anchor and with the purchase of Gimlet Media it start, started becoming clear what their strategy was and that was to create a centralized advertising 
network for audio, which still doesn't exist to this day, which is incredible considering how much podcast, how many podcasts are out there, how much audio content is consumed. And the closest there is to that is what Spotify actually already has built, which is that ad network for their ad supported users. The users who yeah. don't want to pay the subscription, they get ads inserted before songs. Um, and so they've already got this thing built out for them. And it, 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 it really makes sense for them to be the ones to go after this market. Yeah, absolutely. Um, speaking of royalties then, so Spotify has, has been criticized a lot in the past over its payment to musical artists. Um, I suppose Taylor Swift is probably the most famous um, person who kind of kicked up a fuss about this. She boycotted the site for three years over a row about royalties. Um, Rory, I'd be interested to, to get your opinion on this. Do you think, you know, shelling out $100 million reportedly for one podcasting show, um, could, could that be kind of seen as a slight to some of the musical artists who kind of have so many grievances with Spotify? <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm sure, they, I'm sure a lot of them would like to get $100 million paid yeah. to them. But it's like, it's, you know, certain things are about exclusivity and certain things are about reach. The music industry's definitely shifted over the last number of years where now the vast majority of the money that they're making is not actually through the list people listening to the music. It's through what you get after that, which is, you know, the big, the concerts, the merchandise. Um, yeah. So in, in terms of definitely for kind of smaller artists, you know, Taylor Swift is, is kind of in a different category, but you want people listening to your music as much as possible because that means in a post-COVID world, obviously, you're going to have more people interested in going to your gigs, and that's how how artists are trying to make money this, these days. So the, it's you know it's two different things really at the moment. Podcasts are a very young industry, and you know it, it's incredible when you think about the amount of time that's spent with people listening to podcasts versus what's actually spent in terms of dollar advertising towards them. Um, yeah. it's it's very it reminds me very much of the the early days of the internet when the internet was first really exploding but no one was spending money on internet advertising. Uh, and that's, be and like, that's because there w it wasn't easy. It was a hard thing to do. You had to, you know, and we've talked about before the, the famous kind of ads, banner ads that used to pop up where you had to shoot five targets and then fill out a load of forums and with join an a, yeah, with an iPhone or with an iPhone. It wasn't even iPhones around back then. It was like with an iPod. Um, and they were all targeted towards the companies that used to advertise on those were these kind of affiliate marketers who were trying to get people to sign up for really long tail, uh, long high lifetime value products, you know, like subs magazine subscriptions and things like that, because they, it was, you know, it was one of those spray and pray where if you just hit a couple of customers, you know, you'll get a lot of money from them for them for a long, long time. And we've seen that in, in podcast advertising still, you know. The companies like ZipRecruiter and Blue Apron, they're, they're long-term sign-up businesses. It's not once-off, buy this product for one time only. So yeah. that's where the, the, the industry is sitting at the moment. That's why it's hard for, for companies to justify spending on podcasts. Whereas if you have some sort of centralized system, similar to like if you were to create the Google AdWords of audio advertising, that's a great business to be in. And that's where Spotify is aiming. Cool, very interesting. Um, so let's move on to some other big news from the last week then, and it was uh, Facebook and the launch of a new service from them, Facebook Shops. This is a new feature that allows businesses to create storefronts and platforms across the social media giant, including the nat native Facebook platform as well as Instagram. The service will also eventually be extended to WhatsApp and Messenger, according to uh, CEO Mark Zuckerberg. Um, 
After warning of the impacts of the recent COVID-19 pandemic on the company's business, um, do you think this might be a way for Facebook to reduce its dependency on advertising where it gets most of its revenue, Emmett? I do, yeah. So, I mean, Facebook's might is just unquestionable. And on that very call where Zuckerberg announced shops, he also said that there's 800 million people engaging in live videos every single day on Facebook and Instagram. So really they have an uncontested, um, I suppose, audience and, and mind space. And uh, it made a lot of sense. And he said on the, on the call that he said, quote, rather than charge businesses for shops, we know that shops are valuable for business. They're going to, in general, bid more for ads and will eventually make money that way. So this is really a play at bolstering their advertising revenue, which is entirely how they generate their revenue. Um, yeah. So I, I think it makes sense. Uh, you know, there's so many platforms now offering uh, have offerings for shops, small shops, home shops. Uh, this is another, but it's one that's already familiar to far more people than, for example, Shopify or some of the other um, alternatives like building a website with Wix. Yeah. Facebook has a fairly mixed history, though, regarding new product launches, Rory. Um, things like Facebook dating and, and the Facebook portal haven't exactly worked out for the company. But with the amount of data I suppose Facebook has and the amount of knowledge it has about kind of um, it, its users, this, this one will probably pan out a little bit differently, do you think? Well, what's interesting about shops is that if, if the way Facebook's advertising works, and what Facebook is really good at advertising is getting people to make impulse purchases. If you ever go down through um, Instagram and you see the ads that they post on Instagram, it's all very much like, it's all about visual. It's all about catching you in that moment and making you click on the ad right away. And if you've ever actually clicked on an Instagram ad, the problem is that you then go over to, you know, the merchant store and then you have to start filling out things like your entire kind of address and payment information, all this kind of stuff. And a lot of the time we're actually being done is being sent to a web store, typically powered by Shopify. So yeah. the problem with that is by the time you've started filling out all your, your details, you've said to yourself, wait, do I actually want this product? Um, because it is very, very much an impulse buy. That's what they're really good at. They're great at getting people to click on those glitzy ads that look really nice. If you have a shops platform powered by Facebook, or well, it's actually gonna, it's likely gonna be powered by Shopify still, but if you're able to incorporate it into a Facebook system that where you have something like a Facebook payment platform, you don't need to do all that stuff. Facebook, you could set up a kind of PayPal style account with all your details already there and you can just make that purchase instantly. And that's gonna be great for advertisers. It's gonna be great for merchants. The people who it might not be good for is kind of platforms like Shopify who want you, who want customers going through their, their end payment platforms. Yeah. That's where they make quite a lot of money. Um, on the flip side, you know, Shopify a couple of months ago started launching their uh, fulfillment network, which has grown really, really quickly. I think they've got something like seven warehouses across the US at the moment. They've got this very cool system where uh, if you buy something from one of their, uh, from a web store, Shopify are able to print out packaging that looks exactly like the web store you bought it out for. So you've no idea that's coming through the Shopify network in any way. So in one sense, that'll, that'll improve their fulfillment network ambitions. So yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a baller move by Facebook. I think it's probably gonna work out quite well for them because not only does it help because it makes things easier to purchase, 
it's great for merchants because it makes things easier to purchase. Yeah. Yeah. You, sorry, James. I noticed they have a new UI user interface on their traditional website. Well, it's new to me anyway. And um, they, I think it's probably streamlining very much with the Instagram look and feel, which I think a lot of buyers are used to. Uh, using, as you rightfully said there, Rory, but don't so much like being brought off somewhere else to think about it. You mentioned, Rory, there um, that uh, you mentioned Shopify and this new venture, the Shops Venture, was done in partner partnership with Shop Shopify. Um, as one of the darlings of Wall Street over the past few years, do you think it's a good move for Shopify to move closer to Facebook like this? Um, I would say, like I said, I think there's benefits and negatives for Shopify in this deal. You know, yeah. they... They very much do. I mean, it is going to increase people buying off their merchants, but it's cu cutting them off slightly from the fees they generate through their merchant solutions, which has become their biggest revenue driver over the last couple of years. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it really depends on how much they can they can leverage this new fulfillment network that they're building and how much money that's going to be, how much how important that's going to become to their future revenue growth, because in the end, at the end of things, people using Shopify is going to be good for the company. And if it's mostly powered by Shopify, then the more people buying, the better. Yeah. So moving on then, tensions between the US and China have started to raise its head again with a new bill that could force Chinese companies to give up their listings on American stock exchanges passing in the US Senate last week. Um, this bill has generally bipartisan support and it's coming off the back of apparent failures by many Chinese-based companies to adhere to US reporting standards. I mean, I'm going to come to you first. It's often been said that investing in Chinese companies carries just an extra degree of risk. Um, did recent scandals like the one with Look and Coffee um, prove that to you? It certainly reinforced it, James. I'm not saying that every Chinese company is a bad investment. We know that, but it is more fraught. And, and over the years, uh, I've owned quite a lot of different Chinese companies listed on the US stock exchange. I I think my first was either Baidu or New Oriental Education. I can't recall which one. But um, yeah, there is an, an additional layer of complexity when you buy a Chinese company listed on a new US exchange. And really, as individual investors, as retail investors, we have always taken a degree of comfort over the fact that in order to be listed on a US exchange, such as the NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange, a company has to meet certain requirements, you know, trade at minimum share price, making financial disclosures promptly, behaving in a way that's quote unquote American. Um, but as we learned, uh, and a lot of us learned with our wallet, with looking that it's not always as plain sailing as you'd hope. Yeah. So um, when kind of the news of this kind of potential um, bill came out, we got a lot of questions in from customers asking, you know, what would happen if Chinese companies in their portfolio are forced to list from American exchanges? Rory, can you shed a little bit more light on that? Is this something investors should be worrying about at the moment? Um, yeah, well, as Emmett said, you know, investing in Chinese companies, investing in any foreign company uh, is always adds an extra element of risk. You know, first of all, currency risk is, is one thing that always has to be considered when you're investing in a company not based in the US. Um, investing in Chinese companies, you know, they have kind of tarnished with a brush of being a little looser with their reporting standards over the years. This bill that was passed unanimously by the Senate last week, it's it's not designed to delist Chinese companies. That's not what they were um, out to do. The bill basically says that uh, companies need to certify that they're not owned or controlled by a foreign government. 
and that the books, the company books, must be opened up to the public company accounting oversight board uh, for three consecutive years. And that the that board is a non-profit watchdog that oversees the audits of public companies. And um, now Chinese companies are in a bit of a tight spot here because Beijing does not want their uh, them to see their books, so they're kind of um, caught in between these two these two uh, these two interests. There's, you know, the first of all, the bills it did pass the Senate. It has to pass. It still has to pass the House, and it still has to be signed by uh, the President. There's, there's an awful lot of things to consider here. Uh, for one thing, you know, there's 200 companies that could potentially be like not delisted automatically. That's not going to happen. But you're talking about 1.8 trillion dollars in market cap that would be leaving the U.S. markets, and yeah. you know, the Americans do not want that. They also don't want to cut off investors from one of the world's fastest growing markets, especially if we're entering, as people think we will do, a uh, recession. Um, so, you know, there's, I'd say, I wouldn't, if I was an investor, I wouldn't be worried about my company being delisted overnight under any circumstances. There's also a, a three-year grace period for companies that want to get up to standards with, with what the PCAOB would be looking for. Um, so it's not something that you should, you know, knee-jerk reaction now and sell all your Chinese stocks. I mean, there's also a lot of like political intrigue to this. You know, China could react by hurting American companies operating in China, and we know there's an awful lot of them. There's Nike, Starbucks, yeah. Apple. You know, Win Resorts. There's so I think there's an, an awful lot of noise here, um, and not necessarily much to be too concerned about at the moment. It's something people should keep an eye on, most definitely. Mm. Uh, and you know, if you're really worried about it, if it's keeping you up at night, then you need to uh, de-risk yourself from those from those stocks and, and purchase something that's safer. So I might just add, um, James, just on the point, just uh, is that when you own shares in a business, whether it's listed or delisted, you still own those shares. Like a stock exchange is, as its name implies, it's just a market to trade the stocks that you own. So if a company that you own shares in is delisted, you can still sell them on over-the-counter uh, bulletin board or OTC as it's known, and virtually all full service brokers offer you the, the ability to sell and buy OTC stocks that might take a little longer and might cost a little more, um, but you still own your shares in that business. It's just the yeah. that being floated on the NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange um, it has been removed as an option, if you like. So, uh, you know, nobody wants to see their companies delisted. Uh, yeah. But when it happens, there's no fear that you no longer own those shares or that, you know, your stake ownership in that business has in some way been compromised. What's actually been compromised is the liquidity options, the ability to find another buyer for them. So um, yeah. I guess that's just to, to add on to the points that, that Rory made. Uh, Rory, you recently wrote a Daily Insight about that. And don't forget that you can read that in the My Wall Street app right now. Speaking of daily insights, let's also take a look at some of the other things happening in my Wall Street at the minute. June's Stock of the Month is due to go live this coming Monday, June the 1st. And don't forget that our Stock of the Month podcast will follow the week after. This is an exclusive podcast available only for my Wall Street members where Rory and I dig deeper into the reasons why we like this month's Stock of the Month selection so much. Of course, we'll also be adding a new stock to our market beating shortlist in June as well. Um, this collection of stocks is currently beating the S&P 500 by more than 50 percentage points. If you're not a member, you can sign up to my Wall Street and get a free trial where you can access all of this stuff by clicking on the link in the notes for today's show. 
Uh, let's move on to Jargon Busters then. So we have a few questions in this week. Um, Rory, I might come to you with the first one. It comes from Stefan on Twitter. And he was asking about um, gaming companies and the ones perhaps we feel here at you know, My Wall Street are best positioned to benefit during the, the current kind of lockdown period. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting space at the moment, particularly with the uh, coronavirus keeping everyone at home. I'll give a quick shout out to um, a newsletter that I discovered recently. It's called Master the Meta. It's by a young guy called Aaron Bush, who works at, with our pals over at the um, Motley Fool. And it's just really, if you're into the gaming industry, you want to learn more about it, definitely sign up for it. He's got some really good insights uh, on that. And um, I'll probably end up stealing quite a few of them in this in this answer to Jargon Busters. Um, but yeah, the, so uh, right off the bat, there, we have seen a huge uptick in spending uh, in the industry. April was the highest spend highest monthly spend in gaming in US history. Uh, it was 1.46 billion. Uh, the previous high was way back in, in 2008. Uh, it was up 73% from uh, April last year. Uh, and it was, it was a big increase across all, in, across all categories, uh, hardware, software, accessory, gaming cards, all went up quite, quite a lot. Um, in terms of uh, gaming over the last few years, the actual selling of the games, uh, we've got two big companies in our in our showroom that we watch quite closely. One's Activision Blizzard, uh, and the other is Take Two. Activision's been doing really well with their most recent Call of Duty game, Modern Warfare. That's the number one selling game this year. It's it's was the number one. It's still the number one selling after the the most recent figures came out. Take Two Interactive's doing really well as well. They've got uh, NBA been a big success for them. The new Borderlands game has been a big success for them. Grand Theft Auto is 5 is still amazingly like the fifth top selling game in, of the year. How many <laughs> years ago was that released first? It seems like 8 or 9 lost, is it anyway? I've lost count now. Yeah, it's Grand Theft Auto uh, 15. I'm going to guess 15 and it's it's a bit to Google but I'm going to guess 15 years. He, uh, 15 years? No, not Grand, uh, Grand Theft Auto 5 I think was uh maybe seven years ago now this oh sorry that's which meant the grand theft auto franchise oh no, yeah, no, no. that was grand much longer grand theft auto was released in october 97 so 23 years ago wow yeah one of the most successful gaming franchises of all time i think it, i think it's still slightly being beaten by tetris or uh, but uh <laughs> collectively very 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 popular uh series and take two is one of the ones i particularly like uh i think they've done a great job over the year of um diversifying their revenues they used to be very much a company that got lumpy lumpy re revenue results because they were releasing these triple a games every front of four or five years so you'd have a big spike and then you'd see the revenue decrease year over year over year until they released another big hit so those big hits were typically the grand theft auto series and things like red dead redemption they've diversified a lot into these kind of sporting games like nba 2k where they get kind of much more easily recurring revenue and also obviously they're making huge amounts of money from microtransactions within those games and expanding them into the online universe as they've done with Grand Theft Auto and, and with Red Dead Redemption. Those are two uh, companies where we all, we've had recommended for quite a long time and which I still think are the, the best ones in the industry. Another one which we mentioned recently enough, which isn't in the showroom yet, but been keeping a close eye on is Sea Limited, uh, which is a company in Southeast Asia. Uh, they've had some great success with a game called Free Fire, which 
uh, hit 80 million daily active users last month. It's the highest grossing wow. mobile game in Latin America and Asia. So that's one to keep on the radar if you're, if you're looking to expand into the gaming industry. Cool. Uh, the next question comes in from Vinny via email. Um, Emma, I might throw this over to you. So he was asking, when we're looking at potential investment, do we look at the industry and filter it down to individual companies in the industry? Or rather, do we look at individual companies and then filter up? So I suppose, are we, do we take a top-down or a bottom-up approach when we're looking for new ideas? Yeah, so, you know, as a lot of our readers, uh, sorry, our listeners know, our top-down investing involves looking at the big picture economic factors. You know, the, it's looking at the macro market and a bottom-up investing approach. It goes more company-specific. Um, personally, but I don't think you can do one without the other. Um we have developed an expertise at my Wall Street, I think, more from a bottom-up investment perspective. We we seek out companies with certain attributes. We look at their the environment in which they're operating, the market in which they're trying to grow, um, the products they have, and, and the numbers specific to that business. So uh, I, I don't think we ignore the macro economy. Uh, certainly, we, I know we don't, but I know our expertise comes from a looking for the businesses that display the attributes of greatness and we accept the backdrop to a point would you agree agree with that rory i mean look i personally i think there's it's always a mixture of both you know sometimes sometimes you find an individual company that that opens up kind of a broader uh industry focus that you might have and you know for example you could you know recently we added a company called datadog which uh, I liked as a company and that's kind of made me think much more about that industry in general. So, you know, I started from a bottom up approach and now taking a top down approach to trying to find other great opportunities in that space. So, yeah, it's a, it's a mixture. I can't, I, I can't imagine that I kind of favor one or the other. It really depends on how the original idea comes to you. Yeah, true. And in fact, it's a, and you explain that Rory kind of highlights a difference in understanding, which is what is the top when you're talking about the top down. So at the very, very top, there's the macroeconomic backdrop, you know, America Inc., for example. And then I suppose the, the next layer down is industry. And I agree that is extremely important. There's industries we very much like. Um, we discuss them here all the time. I won't dive into that. Um, and you're right. So Vinny, yeah, really it's a mixture of both, but we, I guess, prefer to find great businesses with joint opportunities. And then we, I guess, look at the, at the top afterwards. Yeah way of finding great businesses as well like great individual companies is if you're interested in a particular industry but maybe you don't know you know much about it is to go and find an etf that specializes in that industry and to look yeah. at the holdings within that etf and you know you'll get you'll get a list of 20 30 companies that all operate in that space and you can kind of go through those companies and decide which ones you like the best so that's i mean that's very much a top-down approach but you know, like I said, there's other ways of doing it as well. Sometimes you just hear about a, a ticker symbol that people are talking about. You research it a bit and you find a whole new industry that you might be interested in uh, to explore. Absolutely. Thanks for that. And the final question comes in from Declan by email. I might throw this to you again, Emmett. So he was questioning, um, so I suppose with the launch of over the last 15 or 20 years, the launch of online brokerages, um, the kind of notion of getting share certificates when you when you buy stock has gone out the window. Um, I suppose, why has that happened? And is there any potential dangers in the fact that you don't get certificates for shares anymore? 
Well, I'll start with a second. There isn't any danger. Uh, you know, the whole world has obviously gone digital and as much as there's a war on cash and we're moving away from exchanging pieces of paper uh, that, are, that have a value attached to them, we're doing the very same with stocks and share certificates. Um, in fact, I can safely say in 25 years, I don't think... I've ever been sent uh, a share certificate, or if I have it so long ago, I don't even recall. Um, certainly annual reports um, were stuffed through the letterbox up until I suppose maybe 10 years ago or thereabouts. So really, we don't get share certificates anymore because when you make a purchase through a licensed broker who in turn is allowed to buy those shares on an exchange for you, there's a clearing process that registers those shares in your name. And that's a very, very heavily governed um, transactionary process. And the, I suppose the weakest link is when you post a piece of paper to somebody who puts it in their filing cabinet to various degrees of, of security and, and there it's yeah. it. So really we don't get share certs anymore simply because it's inefficient. You know, it requires something to go into your filing cabinet and come back out of it again when you want to sell it. I, I haven't seen a share cert in so long, like, I can't even recall. Yeah. It's all so much cheaper. I mean, the reason we can buy shares now for one cent a share is that we don't have to send out a piece of paper. You know, there's the whole idea of discount brokering online could, would never have worked in a, in a world where we're still sending out share certificates. So. There's, um, you know, benefits and cons to everything. This is one of the kind of trade-offs. And there's plenty of uh, organizations out there to protect investors like FINRA and SPIC. So, you know, I wouldn't really worry about it as, a, as an investor. Absolutely. Thanks for that. So let's move on then to, and finish up with our elevator pitch. So this week's one is one we've done before, but I thought, I suppose, since we were talking about Chinese companies earlier in the podcast, it would be a good one to revisit. So. I want you guys to pitch me your favorite non-US listed company. So a company that's not listed on the US markets that you quite like. Rory, I'll come to you first. Uh, well, this one's not listed on any exchanges at the moment. It's still a private company, but um, and it's actually just part of a private company. I don't, I don't even know if I'd be interested in the, in the full company, but definitely this subsidiary. <laughs> Uh, is is TikTok, which has just been one of the huge success stories of the last couple of years. I think last last time I clocked them, they had 800 million users, which is just phenomenal growth. When you think of how long it took uh, Facebook to achieve those kind of figures, um, it seems to be one of those companies that the, the time for it is now. You know, everyone's stuck at their homes, uh, trying to yeah. entertain themselves. And uh, I'm not a TikTok user myself, but I've seen some very funny ones and people, you know. There's a, people have a huge amount of creativity when, when given the tools to express it. Uh, what's really kind of piqued my interest in it is that Kevin Myers, who was uh, tipped to be the new CEO of Disney before, who's he was running Dis Disney's digital direct to consumer uh, division for years. Uh, he was not given the job; he went instead to Bob Chapek, and now he has become the CEO of TikTok. So. I would wow. expect, I wouldn't be surprised now if uh, TikTok is spun off. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they're spun off into an American company. Uh, I wouldn't yeah. be surprised if we see them on the exchanges at some point in the near future. And that would be a company I'd be quite interested in. Definitely be quite interested in seeing the numbers for and possibly interested in investing in because it's it's done so well and they've, they've clearly tapped into something very, uh, very important or to people. <clears throat> so would Kevin Meyer have been involved in the in the kind of build up to the Disney Plus launch. Yeah, he was pretty much running the entire thing. 
and he was also yeah he was also uh, very involved in the purchases of the the major acquisitions that the uh, Disney made over the years Marvel and Pixar and um, Lucas Films. Wow, interesting. Okay, Emmett, what's your favourite non-US listed company? Well, apart from my Wall Street, of course, um, I'm quite a fan of Stripe, which is another Irish business, slightly bigger, uh, and is the privately owned uh, business that's, I think, the biggest competitor to Shopify. Uh, Also very interested in SpaceX. Elon Musk's Midas touch goes into space, and I think it's the uh, it's a nice play for our the next stage of humans' journey upward. Did you and me just do a switch through? I have a funny feeling that the last time we did this private company pitch, that you picked TikTok and I picked Stripe. <laughs> I think that's actually. <laughs> I was having a deja vu there, going, did we not do this? Like. <laughs> We really need to start coordinating these. <laughs> you know when you watch um, when you watch like a, a sitcom for a long, long time, and eventually they start doing those like clip shows, and you know they're just running <laughs> out of ideas. <laughs> Maybe that's what we've got to in the oh life of the So if you have a better idea for an elevator pitch next time, make sure to send it in to us. And and that's about it from this week's Stock Club. Um, Don't forget about all the great new stuff in my Wall Street at the moment. And if if there's anything you want us to discuss or explain on the next episode, please make sure to get in touch with us. You can find us on Twitter. That's at MyWallStreetHQ. Or email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. That's P-O-D at MyWallStreet.com. Don't forget to subscribe to Stock Club. And if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review or a rating on whatever podcasting platform you listen to us on. That's it for today. We'll talk to you in two weeks. Happy investing. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.